Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Mara Aspinall. Mara is a veteran diagnostics executive, investor, and educator. She's a venture investor with Bluestone Venture Partners, the CEO of Health Catalysts, a consulting firm, and the co-founder and professor of the practice of biomedical diagnostics at Arizona State University. It's the only program of its kind in the country designed to provide graduate level education at the intersection of technology and business in diagnostics. Before doing all that, she cut her teeth in the diagnostics business as president of Genzyme Genetics before its sale to LabCorp, and then as CEO of Roche's Ventana Medical Systems, back when it was in the early days of developing a companion diagnostic strategy to pair up with targeted therapies. Mara is simply one of the smartest and most experienced people I know in the diagnostics business. I have sought out her perspective on the crucial and undercovered diagnostic testing aspect of the pandemic response. She has written a few terrific guest editorials on Timmerman Report that I've been privileged to edit. I'll post the links to those articles on the show summary at Timmerman Report. There are a lot of people with opinions about testing, and some are better informed than others. But better than almost anyone I can think of, Mara is able to synthesize the disparate threads of science and business and the practical policy challenges of scaling up to meet the need for better COVID-19 testing. I will say as well, this episode was recorded Friday, September 3rd. I was thinking a lot about the start of the school year and why we weren't seeing more widespread rapid antigen testing in K-12 schools around the country. Regular listeners of The Long Run know this isn't a news-oriented podcast, but this is a really timely topic that I had to ask Mara about. I did notice in the days after this recording that President Biden and others have started talking more about increasing efforts to expand testing. So if this show feels a little dated by the time you listen, recognize that everything moves fast in the pandemic, and I was seeking to cover some of the big testing questions as they stood on September 3. I actually think quite a lot of what Mara had to say will still be relevant throughout the fall and further into the future as we think about improving pandemic response. Now, before we get started, a word from the sponsor of the long run, AnswerThink. Today's sponsor, AnswerThink, has been consistently recognized by SAP, one of the largest enterprise software companies, as a top business partner for delivering and implementing SAP solutions for small and mid-sized life science companies. Their SAP certified solutions designed for the life science industry are pre-configured, rapidly deployable, and address fundamental business and IT challenges such as integrating your business applications, delivering validated reporting, increasing your speed to market, support for global rollouts, as well as delivering a fully compliant solution that meets FDA's strict standards. Explore how AnswerThink can streamline your business processes to ensure growth. Visit answerthink.com Timmerman and get a copy of their ebook, Top 3 Barriers to Growth for Life Science Organizations. That's answerthink.com Timmerman. Now, please join me and Mara Aspinall on the long run. Mara Aspinall, welcome to the long run. Great to be here. So Mara, before we dive in a little bit on your background, can you say just a little bit about the, the multiple hats that you're wearing currently? There's Bluestone Venture Partners, Health Catalysts, and Arizona State. What are you doing with these three entities? So um, I have the privilege of working with a lot of great teams with a center around uh, diagnostics. So Bluestone Venture Partners is a venture firm focused on what we call the NATO states, New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, and Oklahoma. We believe there are a lot of underappreciated great companies and management teams in the mountain Southwest. Health Catalyst Group is my small consulting firm, again, focused on diagnostics and health information technology firms and helping them grow. 
But then, to be fair, my real passion is around education for diagnostics. Seven years ago, um, with President Michael Crow, we co-founded the School of Diagnostics at Arizona State to create what is still the only school in the world with an independent discipline focus on diagnostics. Diagnostics is so often the asterisk on other disciplines. We need to make diagnostics the center of its own discipline. And that's what the school is doing. And part of that work at Arizona State is uh, I was introduced to the team through our national summit at the Rockefeller Foundation. So um, with my ASU hat on, I am a grantee at uh, Rockefeller and a senior advisor to Rockefeller, advisor to Rockefeller for testing. It's great. So you really do have a foot in the world of academia as well as the business world uh, as an investor, as a consultant. You see a lot of things, but the revolving around diagnostics. Can you uh, rewind for us just a little bit of your background, like how you got here? Um, I think it was at Genzyme, pioneering biotech company uh, known for rare disease treatments, but also had genetics and diagnostics work. How did you get started in diagnostics? So you're absolutely right. It was a Genzyme and Henry Tremere, who um, uh, passed away too much too soon, about five years ago. But in any case, he was an early supporter of the importance of diagnostics. He took a lot of flack from investors and stakeholders um, because they said, you have a great therapeutic business. Why are you bothering with diagnostics? And Henry really believed in the power of information. And I like to think about diagnostics as an information business with a wet lab on the side. It's not about technology. It's about information. And um, I was at Genzyme. It's, this is, a, I think, a fun story. I was at Genzyme about eight weeks. And the diagnostic initially, um, well, it was a different business. It was the manufacturing business that was failing. But um, when I was working with Henry, he really emphasized the importance of creating a national brand and national strength in diagnostics. We started with oncology and reproductive medicine, basically prenatal. And when I got into the diagnostics business, I fell in love. I love the short product development cycle. We would have an idea with my great team and we could get that on the market in 18 months. In therapeutics, they would have an idea and it didn't get onto the market for 18 years, not quite, <laughs> but it's not that much of an exaggeration. No. I could work with a team and we would see things start and they'd finish in a short period of time and make an impact. And at Genzyme Genetics, we were the first one to do more than 18 different mutations in CF. We eventually got to 100 and set the industry standard. We were the first ones to be testing for rare disease during pregnancy and giving people the information to make educated decisions. So when I got there, I never wanted to leave and have stayed in diagnostics since then. That's great. I love how you put it about information to make educated decisions. Um, because too often we're flying blind in, in medicine without good enough information to make those good decisions. Yeah. Now, uh, but, but so you, um, you were there for at Genzyme for quite some time. Uh, and then what was your next step was Ventana, or I, I think you did a startup in between, but could you tell That's us a little right. bit about, about Ventana? Sure. And uh, I'll, although I'll, I'd like to talk about the in-between for a moment there, because okay. at Genzyme Genetics, we did 42 acquisitions of small labs to build, you know, organic growth, but also building. And I had a great number two, and he was ready to take over. So he, I was very pleased to hand him the rein, and I did something highly unusual. I took a sabbatical mid-career, and I worked at Dana-Farber and Harvard Medical School. And why did I do that? I wanted to understand how doctors were trained and how doctors thought about testing and diagnostics. So I spent almost a year doing that. And as I was ready to go back to Genzyme, I got a call from a venture capital firm and they said, why don't you take over as CEO 
of this brand new company to do circulating tumor cells. And long story short, we raised a lot of money at the time, 26 million. We were like number one money raiser outside of therapeutics that year. Um, but the company failed. We were too early and we did not have strong enough technology. And it was during that time, A, I learned so many lessons. I think it's, you know, you don't want to always confront your failures, but most of the time you learn more from your failures than you do with your successes. And so I think that's an important context because during those two years of the startup and the time at Harvard Medical School um, were about amongst the most intellectually challenging of my career. And I I still think about them on a regular basis. But it was during that period of time, I got a call from Roche who said, we, um, the CEO position is open in Tucson, Arizona. We want you to come out and um, become the CEO of Ventana Medical Systems, now called Roche Tissue Diagnostics. So that's how I headed west and got into the IVD part of the diagnostics field. And Ventana is in Tucson, Arizona? It is, yes. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So what did you do there? What kind of experience did you get? Well, it was, um, you know, I came in as CEO, and this had been a very thriving um, company. Roche had come in a few years earlier to buy it. And it was at that stage that it was a combination of independent in many ways, but starting to integrate into Roche. And it was an exciting time because... Um, cancer diagnostics were becoming front and center. I mean, it, it's 10 years ago. It wasn't that long ago, but um, we forget so quickly how personalized medicine, companion diagnostics, digital imaging were not standard. And I believe, I'm a little bit biased, but that Ventana and Roche were on the forefront of all of those trends to make companion diagnostics central, um, there was essentially no business. We had to educate pharma and tell them what companions are. And when I left, we had a robust team of 20 people focusing on creating companion diagnostics. Personalized medicine was granted not new, but it wasn't the de facto standard. Um, when I left, it was, and clearly not just me and not just the great Ventana team, but it had become um, the primary way for people to be diagnosed. So it was no longer just about you have breast cancer. It was about you have ER positive, PR negative breast cancer. And the nomenclature changed. So I was really excited. And then lastly, digital pathology came into its own during those years as well. It was all about glass slides. Now, like radiology and mammograms, it moved from the physical to the digital. And, you know, computers are only the result of what humans did, but computers do a much better job in understanding um, pathology than do humans. Now, it doesn't mean it could be done without the human, but the combination is powerful. And we were, again, the leader there. So really proud of the team and what we accomplished. It really is a new era uh, when you think about it. I mean, um, in the way we used to define cancer and treat it um, in, a, in a more scattershot sort of way. And, and get lower, you know, less good results. I mean, it, it, it's happening now. You are so right. And I talk about this, um, I call it Diagnostics 5.0. And I won't go into the details, but when you, you start with Diagnostics 1.0, which is all about the doctor, mostly he at the time, and it was all about using their hands and their eyes and their sense of smell and, and to diagnose patients. And we move forward to the beginning of the automated era of 3.0. And now we're in 4.0 and starting to get into 5.0, which, as you said, it's a sea change. It's a new era, which is about genomics, personalized medicine, and most importantly, information. Um, and that this is where diagnostics shine. There's too many variables for a doctor to keep it all in his or her brain. It's all about those the data information systems that allow you to understand one of a hundred types of blood cancers, one of 40 types of breast cancer, one of 30 types of colon cancer, and that is Diagnostics 5.0. 
So I think it's around 2014 timeframe that you're leaving Roche Ventana. Uh, so much work had, had happened, as you described, in those kind of the, the early 2010s period uh, to change the way diagnostics and therapeutics relate to one another and influence uh, clinical care. Uh, but you saw this this uh, this gap here that you described a little bit earlier with uh, you know no real graduate training for people who want to go into the diagnostics business despite all this interesting activity. So uh, how did you uh, kind of put this into motion there at uh, creating a program at Arizona State? Well, when I spoke to Dr. Crow, he said, "What can we do to change the course of healthcare?" And he, if you don't know ASU or Michael Crow, he is a very big thinker. ASU is now number one for five years in a row in innovation, pushing MIT and Stanford to number um, two and three. And I said the, the single best way we could do it is to create an academic center for diagnostics where we could teach it as an independent discipline, as I said. And um, we set about creating first a master degree program, recognizing it's sort of like an executive MBA, but focused on diagnostics alone, because there were so many people in the industry who knew, quite frankly, know enough to be dangerous. They know what a diagnostic is, but they don't really know how it works. They don't know the technology. So we set about creating this program on five pillars, the science of diagnostics, the technology of diagnostics, the financials of diagnostics, the policy, and the application. And that was the underpinning. And with this great big university, we were able to get people teaching all different pieces of it initially, you know, barring them from other departments. And now we have our own department to teach 122 uh, students this semester alone um, uh, in a master's degree in biomedical diagnostics. Okay, so these people are setting out to become executives of the future in this industry? Yeah, although it is interesting, 50% of them are seasoned mid-level managers. You know, the head of QA in Tucson who wants to become the head of QA and QC worldwide. Um, The regional salesperson who wants to become the national. 50% of them are already executives in the field and they want to leverage this into promotions. 25% 25% of them are uh, allied health professionals or, you know, they're in pharma. They are, every year we have um, pharmacists from CVS or Walgreen who want to know more. We've had three physicians in the program. You know, they're typically more senior. They want to go ahead in their career, but they really want to learn the basics of diagnostics to do a better job in their current position. And then 25% of the class are young and straight out of undergraduate or taking a year off from medical school. And they, most of them, most of the young people are going to apply to medical school and they want the basics here before they get into an allied health profession. So that gives you kind of a makeup of the school, but the kind of, um, the kind of discussions we have as part of the curriculum are those five pillars, but it's really about what's happening in real life. What are the ethical considerations? How does diagnostics fit in or not to the contemporary um, you know, health landscape? What do you consider the classic challenges for this field? The reason why you know, everybody was telling Henry Termeer, don't bother. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is it is it mostly just that we have been traditionally unwilling to pay uh, enough for these, these tests? Or is it more than that? Well, the unwilling to pay to me is the consequence, not the cause. So why are we unwilling to pay? It's because nobody, obviously I'm generalizing, but is that not enough people understand the value of diagnostics. It was a very important moment early in my career where one of the analysts on our um, earnings call said something very close to this effect. 
I hate the diagnostics business. It's lower margin. Why are you bothering? And who are your competitors? And he expected me to say Quest and LabCorp are our competitors, and i.e. we're much smaller and we're going to get crushed. And I said, no, our competitors are not Quest and LabCorp. Our competitors are doctors' brains. Doctors believe, and I appreciate why historically this might have been true, doctors believe they can diagnose better than a test can. And the test always had a bad rap. Um, they were just confirming what a doctor believed. So why spend the money? Why spend the time? Just treat as quickly as possible. Well, that caused a bit of a stir. Um, and a lot of people went back to that. And really, we talked about it as an industry, that it was not about how many test Quest has versus LabCorp versus Genzyme, but rather... How do we educate the real decision makers, doctors, and now consumers, but back then there was very little consumer diagnostics, um, of the value of this? And that you can't figure out, back to personalized medicine, whether somebody's HER2 positive or HER2 negative in breast cancer by just looking at them. You need genomics. You need other levels of diagnostics. You can't determine AML versus ALL, and the subtypes of each, 20 to 30 each, by just looking at them. Nobody has x-ray vision that is that good. This sounds like just such an old school mentality. I would imagine a younger generation of doctors doesn't really subscribe to this. Like They're more in tune with the molecular measurements that you, some of them you just mentioned. It is true. And so if you had to generalize age and when you graduated medical school is as a big indicator, but you know, it, the, the, there's not bright lines between them. There are plenty of doctors who embrace molecular medicine and genomics who were older. And there were plenty of young doctors in my career who were very obstinate and were quote old school, despite the fact that they were young people. So, um, yes, to generalize, it's all about that, but it goes to another initiative I had, um, which is we need to educate doctors far better in medical schools. And you know what I think really changed things is that um, 23andMe, and you may remember Navigenics, oh, yeah. I talked to them about this, they were giving medical school students free genome analysis, and it's funny, when you put yourself as the patient, you learn a lot more than when you're lecturing some other person and your patient. And I believe that the change in genomic medicine was clearly companies and what Illumina did and all the clinical trials, but it's also a generation of doctors learned their own genome, and then they understood how patients want to know this far better. So I think it's all back to personalized medicine. Sometimes you got to make it personal to the doctor. So all of this stuff was has been happening for the last five years plus. Uh, but then um, early 2020, pandemic hits. And I mean, not to uh, belabor this history, it feels like uh, you know 10 years ago now, but <laughs> testing was the initial, kind of like the original sin, <laughs> uh, that we were, we were unable to uh, test inadequate numbers around the country when this thing got loose. And you know, there's a story there with the CDC and, and the FDA. We were slow, we were flying blind and playing catch up for quite some time. There were delays in testing and bottlenecks in supplies and things weren't very coordinated. <laughs> you, you remember all this. That way, um, and that's an understatement. <laughs> so what, what, when you saw, can you just take us back? Like what, what were some of your first impressions of what was happening here before you yeah. even began to think about, okay, what might you be able to do? How you might be able to contribute? Well, I think the first piece and you said it, is an underappreciation about not only the disease itself and that it would somehow magically go away, but that the important role of testing and the testing itself needs to be distributed to be utilized and effective quickly. And, you know, everybody knows the story about the CDC. I'm sure there are well-meaning people to try hard to do it, but 
other countries around the world, including some very small perceived as not sophisticated countries, were able to take that genome sequence of SARS-CoV-2 and create a test far faster than we do, which doesn't mean, you know, making perfect the enemy of the good. It's the fact that people worked more broadly in teams than seemingly we did. And one of the hallmarks of my career that I feel very proud of is that I've been able to work in partnership across an industry. And I think the best opportunities are when industry works together with government. Uh, So I'm talking about lessons learned more than what happened because everybody knows what happened. But there was an underappreciation about testing. Now, why was that? I think fundamentally in COVID, we got it wrong. People thought about testing as certainly the last administration, which is about te- you know getting the numbers of people who have the disease. Testing is not about counting numbers. Testing is about reducing transmission. But the piece that makes this complicated that is very rare um, in our history is that you can have a disease where 20 to 50% of people are completely asymptomatic. And the only way, only way we could have maybe stopped this is with broad testing early. And we've clearly, you know, a long ago missed that opportunity. So that would have been testing, tracing, isolation, all in tandem. Absolutely. And I'm not a big fan of contact tracing. I mean, I have no problem with it, but I just think people lie. I think the data would say people lie and they under, A, they underappreciate, you know, how many people they saw in the grocery store and B, for good or bad reasons, they're embarrassed. So I think it's all about test, test, test and test. Now, we're not China and there are lots of good reasons and lots of good things about not doing in China. But why? Let's assume we're getting some truth out of China. Why did they get things under control faster than we did? They tested an entire city. They went city by city and tested everybody. Um, Six million people in one of the larger, well, for China, smaller city, but one of the cities. And they said, you got to stay home this weekend till you get tested. And at the same time, they said, okay, these are the people positive. You can get rid of this disease. We could have, and maybe we still can, if we have broad testing and understand who's positive, isolate them, and then start to move on. The problem today is that most of the spreaders and likely many of the super spreaders are people without symptoms. I, and I'll stop here, but Oh, this frustrates me. What are the most dangerous words in the COVID era? I feel fine. Because people say they feel fine and they don't bother to test. That cannot, that is not the right way to go forward, but it's what we're dealing with today. Yeah, you're right. People lie. They say, and even when they have a positive test, they they want people oh. to not worry about them. So they they downplay their symptoms. Yeah. Uh, so And that doesn't help, right? With getting good information out to the public health authorities are alerting everybody around you. Um, okay. So can we talk a little bit about the tests? Because like I, I brought up all that history, but that's so much water under the bridge. I mean, some good things did happen. Like industry uh, in the diagnostics world did step up. It's not a story that's been told as much as with say the vaccines, but yeah. um, uh, you know, very good RT-PCR tests, very, very sensitive, very accurate, were uh, developed in pretty short order. Uh, and a lot of academic labs stepped up. Um, in, I'm here in Seattle. University of Washington was one that you know created a high-volume lab. Uh, and there were others, too. So, But, but then we, we just haven't been able to keep uh, our eye on the ball here uh, with uh, expanding more access and more different types of tests, at least... Um, you know, to, to meet the need in the moment, like with rapid antigens, for instance, how how would, how has this story, you know, evolved in in your mind over the last 12 to 18 months? Yeah. It's a sad story in, in so many ways, but with, as you said, people have stepped up, but I, you know, it's hard for me to say, because I'm so impressed with the industry and so many people working incredibly hard, but 
at every stage, it feels as if people underestimate the importance of testing. Clearly, the last administration did. They, they didn't even hide it. They said all, all the time, testing is not that important and have restrictions on it. We then had companies and labs scaling up, but not scaling up as if this was going to be the solution. Scaling up to say, we'll do what we can. And then even recently, we've had companies not acknowledge, you know, think that it was over and therefore we weren't going to be testing a lot. Testing is the thing that will, I think, should and actually now will take us the longest to stop doing. Um, I hope that we'll be testing for outbreaks way beyond even when we're getting booster shots, because that's the only way to see if this thing is going to rear its ugly head again. I'm a huge proponent. It's fantastic that we had Operation Warp Speed, but we need Operation Info Speed, um, where we should have at the same time said ramp up testing capacity so that we can get tests to every American to test themselves once a week or twice a week. And I don't think it's too late for that. I know everyone says it's expensive, but try to take a look at what it costs to keep people in the ICU, kids and otherwise, much less the psychological uh, impact of all of this disease. We still have time to say, let's figure out how to flood the zone and get tests in everybody's hands so that we can start to control this thing and use the technology that's out there. So um, I, I have this little graphic that I go through the history of the tests. It started with Bell Lavage, where people were, you know, it was, it was mostly in China and early days here where it was invasive surgery. We then moved to nasopharyngeal swabs, to um, anterior nasas, just the front of the nose, and now saliva. We moved from thousands of dollars per test to $5 a test. We moved from central labs, sophisticated hospitals, um, labs to doing it at home, doing it on the subway on your way to work. Maybe that's not the best way to do it, but there are a lot of people doing it. We've made great progress, too slow, but we're there. How do we now leverage this so we get to a dollar a test and everybody has a package at home so they test you know, once a week before they go out? That's the challenge. And that's why I think Operation Info Speed is still a legitimate idea going forward. Today's sponsor, AnswerThink, has been consistently recognized by SAP, one of the largest enterprise software companies, as a top business partner for delivering and implementing SAP solutions for small and mid-sized life science companies. Their SAP certified solutions designed for the life sciences industry are pre-configured, rapidly deployable, and address fundamental business and IT challenges, such as integrating your business applications, delivering validated reporting, increasing your speed to market, support for global rollouts, as well as delivering a fully compliant solution that meets FDA's strict standards. Explore how AnswerThink can streamline your business processes to ensure growth. Visit answerthink.com Timmerman and get a copy of their ebook, Top Three Barriers to Growth for Life Science Organizations. That's answerthink.com Timmerman. How good are the rapid antigen at-home tests? Are they at a level of accuracy right now where, where we can put them at the top of the priority list and put less emphasis on perf, you know, darn near perfect accuracy with RT-PCR? Yep, they are. But the, the only but here is you have to use them according to the directions. I think the FDA did a great job in saying these at-home, no prescription tests are perfectly acceptable. They're easy to use, but you have to use them in a serial fashion, two tests in 24 hours. You're going to wait 24 hours for your PCR result anyway, if not 48 hours. If you test Monday and you test Tuesday, you are golden. You get two negatives. I stand by that is as good as a PCR test. Now, your readers, listeners probably do know why do we even have to do it twice? It's that antigen tests take maybe 14 hours 
um, probably less with Delta, to become positive when a PCR might be positive in the morning, that antigen test that might not be positive to the evening. So if you do two days in a row, it's as good as PCR and easy to administer at home. So I am fully um, comfortable when used right, antigen tests at home are just as good as PCR. Now, I can pick up one of these at the local Walgreens for $25 or so, uh, but, uh, but how much should they be, how much should they cost? I mean, yeah. if we were going to distribute these things through the government, like, you know, I can get a PCR test for free at the city of Seattle. It has a, a neighborhood testing site, and I don't know how much it costs. And that's, I think that's a great thing. You want to encourage people to be able to get tested. You don't want people to be able to feel like they can afford, you know, a $25 test every time they want one. Absolutely. It, it's too much for most Americans. And it's not just $25. Most people live with their kids, their partner. So for the average family of four, $100 a week is a hell, heck of a lot of money um, to be spending. And it's too much and people can't afford that. Um, secondly, I don't, I mean, I want to flood the zone. And while I, I appreciate it, I don't want the government to spend any more money it needs. I think we need to look at the cost benefit of how many infections and how many serious infections we can avoid by putting broad numbers of tests out there and therefore avoiding ICU time because the government's also paying for all that ICU time and um, all of the nurses and doctors who are out there. And as a result, well, you know, we're pushing people out with elective surgeries and that's gonna have a cost too. We're already seeing it with cancer diagnosis going out that post-vaccine mammograms, um, you know, is a higher percent of positive mammograms because people postpone them. So there are a lot of consequences. So bottom line, we need to get this to low single digits of test and then work with governments to get it out, but also employers. Employers have been mostly silent amidst the pandemic. Now they're getting aggressive with vaccine or test mandates. We need to work with employers and do this as a joint effort to get this regular testing uh, done and have people you know, stay at home when they're positive. And I think with that, we can get on top of this in weeks is probably aggressive, but certainly a few months. It's the only way to go. When you think about a pregnancy test, which is basically the same lateral flow technology, but with different reagents, I can buy those at the dollar store. Um, there's no reason that we can't figure out a way to get there. So let's have a joint effort to do it. How many manufacturers of these rapid antigen tests that at home do we have now available under emergency use authorization? It's a handful, right? Yeah, it's six. Um, right now, what we have is there are 13 tests that are authorized. And of those 13 tests, I'm just trying to find these numbers. Here it is. Uh, there are 13 EUAs for comprehensive at-home at tests. So I'm not talking about taking a sample at home and sending it away. Um, of those 13, nine are over-the-counter, so you don't need a prescription. There are two molecular and seven um, uh, you know, seven antigen tests, but two of those are Abbott. So really six, Abbott, Access Bio, BD, Illum, Orishore, and Quidel. And what kind of, do you have any idea of what kind of capacity or output we're seeing from those companies? Because, uh, I mean, we've heard about shortages. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do um, a weekly newsletter and I have estimated that I think nationwide we have maybe 75 million of these tests a month available. It's too small of a number. The vast majority of that are the two earliest approval antigen ones, Abbott and Quidel. Alum was early, but I think they're relatively small volume. Access Bio and their Care Start test is starting to increase volumes. And then we have um, Orishore increasing volume. And just last week at the end of August, BD Veritor's test was authorized. So bottom line, 
you know, sounds like a big number when you say 75 million tasks, but when you recognize that schools and businesses and individuals are using this, there is a shortage today. We need more manufacturers to be authorized and we need more production from the six that are already there. Well, and being a business executive like yourself, I mean, you would surely appreciate the challenge of estimating the demand of this because, I mean, if you had asked all these companies on July 1 <laughs> what their estimate of demand was going to be for the fall, I'm pretty sure it would be quite different than what they estimate on September 1 uh, with the emergence of the Delta uh, wave. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, were they were they unprepared um, or... Or does someone, does the government need to like step in and purchase a lot of these things to pull them through to, to keep the, the trains moving on time? Well, you know, I'm, uh, this is tough for me. I was saying, you read my newsletter, I was saying in May and June and July that we should be testing for outbreaks. We should be testing for a long time. So I know that people were less uh, aggressive about tests at that point. But I think that it's kind of indicative of the fact that tests are not fully appreciated. We need to be testing, even if this was coming to an end, or we need to be testing even if September or October looks like June. Um, it will not go away. No pandemic or epidemic has just disappeared. It will trickle out over a period of hopefully months, but maybe years. So I, you know, what the volumes are and what somebody's costs are versus what their demand is, I can't speak to any one company's access that and what their margin, you know, what, how they think about it and what their margins can be. But so I can only look forward and say, please, let's not be either naive or stick our head in the ground and say it's going to be over in a matter of months and therefore we don't test. Now, testing may change. It may be more wastewater testing. It may be um, more surveillance type testing than it is diagnostic testing. But the technologies are here to stay. And I'm estimating in the developed countries, you know, two years. If you look at 1918, more people died in 19, the 1918 epidemic, pandemic, more people died in the second year than the first year. Worldwide, that's already happened, and we're trying to desperately avoid that in the U.S., but this is not going to go away that quickly. And then secondly, um, as many have made the case, even if we, quote, figure it out in the U.S. and we go a month with no new cases, it's not going to stay that way unless the rest of the world gets to the same place. We tried locking down in, in a historic way, and that didn't work. No, no one has patience to lock down anymore. So testing demand is not just about one country. It's about the world. So let's figure out ways that we can get the cost down and ensure the testing happens broadly, not just in one country. So can you talk about a couple of the practical ways in which workplaces and schools can implement a testing regimen to, you know, keep everyone in the office or the school safe and and also um, just confident that they can go about their their daily activities without worrying all the time? Um, yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that word um, worrying because that is the number one issue. They need, well, maybe the better word is confidence. They need to be able to com to be confident about what it is. And at ASU with Rockefeller, we did a, a large survey and that was the key piece that people needed to feel safe in the workplace. But, well, let me start with workplace. Um, people are itching to go back to work, even if it's not in the way they did pre-pandemic, five days a week in a traditional office. Um, we found that the majority of employers wanted their employees back physically at least 20 hours a week. I think it's all about testing. Well, testing and vaccine mandates. Vaccine mandates make a big difference, if nothing else, than the cost of their health insurance. But to for what I think is best practices is you absolute best practice, vaccine mandate. And for those who can't, and the few who have conscientious objections, um, you test them twice a week. And then you do occasional random testing of those vaccinated because we know vaccinated people can spread. 
that's the way you get back to work with confidence. And the tests at, you know, you were talking the retail price at 20 or $25 at a wholesale price in a, in a broad way, you can get them cheaper. That's what I think businesses need to do um, to get that full confidence going back. For schools, it's a little bit different. You know, we know the under 12s are not vaccinated, but we also know there is a lot of money, $11 billion from the Biden administration for school testing. Lack of money should be no reason for any school in this country, public, private, or charter, not to test. And a lot of people assume the government money was that $11 billion is only for public schools. It isn't. The federal legislation said any kind of schools, including now pre-K and childcare. Schools should be testing once a week. Certainly um, the unvaccinated, which is the majority, but I think for schools, given how important it is for people to be there, kids and teachers every day, and the reality is social distancing is really tough um, with, you know, at the young ages and in high school. Um, schools have done a valiant job trying it, but it's, it, it's not ideal. So I think schools need to be testing on a regular basis, everybody once a week in pooled testing. Um, so it's surveillance, it's relatively cheap. We're talking about single dollars per test. Many of the states who have made this public are saying their tests per kid per adult is six, seven, eight, nine, ten dollars That is doable with the federal dollars. They do those sort of programs. They add a mask when possible and not mandated against, which don't, don't start me on that, um, then we can have safety in the classroom. In the spring, and I'll, I'll stop here, Luke, so I get really passionate about this. In the spring, only 1% of pools in schools were positive. I suspect it'll be higher now, but even though kids are getting COVID now, it is still dramatic. The school positivity rate is dramatically lower than the community rate. Schools are safer places to be for kids than the grocery store. Let's get them all in school, use testing and use tests to stay. Even when there's an index case, test everybody every day. Don't send them home and don't close the schools. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the... Um spring yeah that that is a good time frame to to think of it um I, i'm the parent of a nine-year-old just started fourth grade wow. and she's ecstatic to get back to school e ecstatic um it's so important um and i think it is up to <clears throat> the, the adults <laughs> to get vaccinated all around them but also to set up a a, a workflow that um, you know, it takes a little bit of work, should have happened over the summer, could still happen in these early weeks of fall. But can you say a little, little bit about what that might look like for the sure. parents who might be listening here? Like they show up at the, you know, the, the parking lot outside the school on Monday morning and everybody does a nasal swab and they drop it in a bucket for a pool test or do they all get individual tests or what's the best practice? Yeah, best practice. And I think maybe 70% of schools are using, well, are using a pooled nasal swabs. And I'm cautious about best practice because any of these testing practices work, but the majority today are using pooled nasal swabs. So it either happens as kids are walking in to the school building or as they walk into their homeroom. Um, each kid is given a swab. They pull down their mask if they're wearing masks. Personally, I hope they are, but even if they're not, they use the swab, anterior nasal swab, just in about a half inch into the nose, and they put it in what's called a falcon tube, which is a larger tube that everyone from Mrs. Brown's classroom puts it into the same tube. I love one of the kindergartners said, oh, I understand. It's boogers down. <laughs> another kindergartner said, if you can pick your nose, you can do this. Um, you, you use that swab, you put it in. And uh, for those part of the NTAP program, the National Testing Action Program, you get those results back to the school within 24 hours. And then when there's a positive pool, so Mr. Mrs. Brown's classroom um, is positive. Most of the time, the teacher's in that sample too. So it's everybody in that classroom. Sometimes in larger classrooms, it's two, but you get a positive pool. Then you say, okay, we need to deconvolute it. 
And either they get another sample or more commonly, they use one of these rapid antigen tests right there in the school. And they say the 20 kids in this pool um, need to do the same boogers down again, swab themselves, put it into the instrument um, or into the test cassette, um, and then find out who amongst those 15 or 20 were positive. That's it. Um, for nasal swabs, I would estimate less than a minute that it takes to do this. For the saliva, some schools do saliva at home. If you do saliva in the classroom, most of the time the kids are sitting at their own desks. It makes, takes maybe three or four minutes. This is not dramatically affecting their educational experience, but it's making the school safe. Do, um, do you still... Uh, believe I know you wrote a piece for Timmerman Report a few months ago about the importance for quantitative PCR testing mm -hmm. uh, because we we tend to get these binary you know yes no answers or positive negative answers from all of these tests and um, but that doesn't really differentiate between the ones who let's say maybe just have a tiny touch of COVID and are you know yeah. not even infectious to other people uh, might be positive, yeah. uh, but uh, versus the other people who really do have tons of viral load in their mucosal membranes and you really wanna get them away from other people. Um, what, what's the role for, because uh, we do have the capabilities to get quantitative readouts, but we don't seem to be doing it just yet. Yeah, and this is to me, I mean, everything you said is absolutely right, but I wanna emphasize, just because somebody has a lot of viral load, they are much more likely to be highly contagious, but it doesn't mean they have a lot of symptoms. So like that teacher in Marin County who took down her, I think it was her, teacher took down their mask just to read a book for a couple of minutes and 22 kids and four adults were infected within the next 48 hours. Now that teacher didn't feel well, um, but thought they had allergies or a cold. They didn't have dramatic symptoms, but I'm going to guess their viral load was off the charts. And we're finding in Delta, people have ridiculously high viral loads, even, even if they are asymptomatic. So what I'd like to see is a program for which most tests can come back just as positive and negative. We don't want to confuse the general public and we don't want people saying, oh, I only have a little bit of COVID so I can go out. But I would like a program where there's an exception process that if a lab sees somebody whose viral load is off the charts and we'd have to come up with some standard um, across different instruments, we then they then have an intervention and say, yes, you're positive, but we have reason to believe from your viral load that you are highly contagious. It's not a value judgment. It's not because you're a bad person or not didn't shower that morning. It just is the biology. But back to where we started today, information is power. If we have the information, why are we burying it? It makes no sense. Well, and not only not only does it give us a sense of who might be more transmissible, but uh, it could also indicate, you know, who is likely to have a bad outcome. Like maybe this is the person who ought to go to the head of the line and get the monoclonal antibody. True. True. And you know, it's funny that relationship is not as clear, okay. but I think you're, you're right at a minimum to be able to serve, you know, to put that person in more aggressive surveillance. And if they live at home, make sure somebody live alone, make sure somebody is checking on them on a regular basis. Why don't we use all the simple tools we have to do a better job for the individual and do a better job for public health? That's why I want to use the information that every lab has. You mentioned earlier that you thought the FDA was doing a pretty good job in getting some of these tests um, cleared. I know that they've they've revoked a number of EUAs as well, particularly the antibody tests. There, there was kind of a wild west period with those that didn't have a lot of data, and those are now largely gone away. If, if you were in the leadership position over there at FDA reviewing diagnostics, what would you say are, I don't know, the top top couple of priorities that, that you yeah. want your, your team to work on? 
Well, little, little dangerous, but oh, what I would say, first of all, I heard from the FDA that they continue to get 100 to 200 new submissions a month. So that is terrific. Um, Rad X is still, you know, has a whole new set of companies. So innovation appears to be alive and well. However, we need to move these applications through the process faster. Now, I don't have the value judgment. I don't have the data to say why these are moving so slowly. But at one point, just a few months ago, they said they were taking 179 days to get a new EUA through the process. I don't get it. If they're understaffed, I would tell them to shout louder and to have somebody in the administration give them the resources they need to move these quickly. We were all, you know, pushing for the vaccine to get full approval. That took longer than we wanted, but a whole lot shorter um, than the typical diagnostic test. We've got to move these things faster. That being said, I'm positive they did have a process around pooling. They have an EUA for collection kits. They have revoked on antibody tests. Listen to this. They've revoked double the number than, than exist. That, that is the wild west of lousy tests. About, they've revoked 160 and they're only 80 something still on the market. Um, so maybe early on they were overly aggressive, but we are where we are now get things through faster and get some of these large scale manufacturers through so we can flood the zone and we can't do it now. I also think there's been just a big communications failure here. Um, the confusion mm -hmm. around what people are supposed to do and uh, what's the right thing. I'll just give you a couple of examples. For, I have a friend who um, wants to travel to India to visit um an ailing relative in Mumbai and needs a 72 hour advanced COVID negative test uh, to travel there. Uh, can't get it through a uh, usual health insurance channel. Looked up a private provider who wants to charge mm -hmm. like $250 yeah. for it for, for PCR test. And it's got to yeah. be PCR. You know, you can't do the back-to-back -back rapid antigen that, yeah. that will not satisfy the authorities. Same thing. My, my parents, uh, you know, wanted to go on a Canadian fishing trip across the Canadian border. Got to have that 72-hour advanced PCR test. Uh, mom and dad have health insurance. Uh, they should be able to go to their local provider and get it. But here, my parents are telling me that uh, they had to drive. They, they decided they were going to drive because they found a place where they could get it three hours away for $75. Oh my God. <laughs> and I thought, you know, you guys live in the United States of America. There ought to be a, it ought to be obvious to you that you can just get it, you know, within a five or 10 minute drive, but it, it wasn't. Uh, Absolutely. Oh, yes. I, I, I'm just scratching my head about it makes me wonder about how many other people are being forced to jump through hoops or travel long distances or struggle with lines and delays. We should not be in this kind of position just trying to go about our daily lives, like go to work, go on a fishing trip, go to school. I mean, this should be more seamless. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I will say for personal travel, maybe the government shouldn't pay for it. So the free testing centers, I understand why they're, you know, they're saying that we won't pay for that. But there have to be more centers. A lot of these centers closed back to that period of time. You know, in, in May and June, everyone was so excited. They closed a lot of them and they're starting to reopen. But I think that, you know, it, it, I'm going to answer your question a little bit differently. If I had magic wand, what would I have done differently? I mean, there are tons of things, but one of the things I would have done differently is try to explain to the American public that success in a pandemic or an epidemic is about adjusting to the current reality. And that it, while people wanted definitiveness, tell me everything I need to know about this, we need to be able to have the flexibility. So I would have had every two week briefings to say, this is what's happening now. And I know it frustrates people. The CDC said this a month ago and they're saying this now. That's the nature of a brand new disease. Yeah, the facts change on the ground. You got to change your advice. 
Exactly. And otherwise, you're at more risk of getting it wrong. So I would have explained early on, this is changeable and that people have to acknowledge the fact that it does change, like PCR and antigen tests for travel. Um, you know, when antigen tests first came out, there were a lot of skepticism, you couldn't get it. And almost, I think every manufacturer has since updated their test. So it was legitimate. They weren't as good. And they were only at 80% sensitivity or 85. It was not good enough. We've now adapt, adopted that. So I think that that needs to happen. But what we can't rely on are the old systems. We've got to think differently and start creating new systems to do it. But there certainly are entrepreneurs out there who might be legitimately high quality, but are taking advantage of it in terms of charging really high prices to do it. I just, what really terrifies me are the people who charge high prices and don't deliver. And we've got to crack down on that, but certainly the federal government doesn't have enough energy to do it. So make sure that if anybody does do it, you're finding legitimate providers. Yeah. Yeah. I like the idea of a once or every once a week or once every other week briefing on the state yeah. of play and, and how it affects your life. Because so often we see these impressions get kind of frozen in the public mind based mm -hmm. on that first impression. Like you say, with the antigen tests, they're just not as accurate as PCR. So therefore, like we dismiss them and we need to lean on PCR all the time. Um, right. Well, that might have been true for a little while, but it's not going to be true forever. And we're now in a different place. Yeah. And, you know, we talked a lot about schools. Um, the Rockefeller Foundation with Rand did a study and Mathematica did a study of parents. And a lot of parents said this test is going to be very painful for my kids. What we believe they why were they saying that? It's because they remember NPS swabs tickling the brain. And that's a thing of the past like that. That went away pretty much a year ago or close to it, I think. Exactly. And it was essentially never in schools. So we need to in a way that, you know, a lot of people don't have time or patience for, but they need to. We need to keep things flexible and get more information. So what's the biggest uh, you didn't ask this, but I'll, I'll say, you know, um, I said the most dangerous words, but I think our biggest miss is the communications and awareness. Um, you know, there was a lot of antipathy to the whole, you know, even acknowledging COVID in the last administration. And now, while we've done a good job, better job, I think, in communicating, but not good enough, we've got to have a regular, steady communication so people don't roll their eyes and saying, oh, the CDC said this today, what are they going to say tomorrow? We've got to educate on the fact of these are the facts, this is what we know, and we will update you when it changes on a regular basis in an organized way. Because I absolutely believe the CDC and the federal government are still respected and need to be. They are well, the center. And, yeah, and, and we, we are like there, there are good news stories within here, <laughs> believe mm -hmm. it or not. I mean, the mm -hmm. fact that you're telling me about the, the rapid antigen tests being as accurate as they are and practical to be rolled out in a cost-effective way at scale and for people to you know, get this kind of quality information that they can use to make educated decisions, to come back to something you said earlier. Uh, that's very empowering. Now, I don't think that memo has gotten out to the public uh, yeah. that, that they can really do this. And th 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 there's also a supply issue. So even if we wanted to, we couldn't just like mail them to everybody's home just right now. But who's to say we couldn't do that? In, you know, in, in fairly short order. Yeah. Uh, and the key word there is empowering. Information is empowering. So I don't care where you are in the political cycle uh, or political beliefs, um, but to be able to know if you or your family is sick is something everybody wants to do. And that's true empowerment. And it's only possible um, through diagnostics. Last thing I want to ask Mara about the diagnostics industry itself uh, through this um, pressure cooker that it's had to go through. Have we um, 
you know, generated some new incentives and demonstrated value, uh, you know, fix some of the problems with supply chain and lack of coordination. Like, essentially, could we end up with a, a stronger industry and, and a better connection to government, like a whole enterprise that's just on more sound footing coming out of this than we were at the beginning? Well, I certainly hope so. Um, but I, I believe that the answer is yes, and not just being Pollyanna as a diagnostic evangelist here. Um, I, you know, why do I say that? I think first, um, you mentioned supply chain. The industry has gotten much more creative because they had to be. So necessity is the mother invention. They figured out all sorts of ways to do it and not just using Q-tips, but um, in figuring out new supply chains, new ways to do it. I mean, think about saliva direct, some, some of the saliva companies to do an RNA test without RNA extraction, pretty creative. Cuts off an hour, cuts off a ton of time and money. Nobody would have said that was even possible. Don't even think about it. So I think creativity reigned. Um, initially starting with supply chain. Secondly, there are real fundamental changes in technology. I mean, lateral flow existed before, but we have improved the ability to do that, improved quality control on manufacturing lines, and invented entirely new systems to do LAMP for $50 or less with just two batteries. We have the a system which is PCR thermocycling and something that's, you know, um, as big as two iPhones together at under $100. So as opposed to other bubbles in other markets where it was all about hype, this is very real and there are new technologies that I do think will fuel the diagnostics industry and more importantly, the healthcare industry going forward. Well, that's a good point. A positive note to wrap up on. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Long Run, Mara. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.